Chapter Two, Part One of The Workers, the East by Walter A. Wyckoff. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two, Part One A Day Laborer at West Point. Highland Falls, New York, Monday, August third, eighteen ninety one. At three o'clock on Saturday afternoon, I decided to quit work on the old academic building. I went up to the boss and told him of my intention, as I had seen other men do, and was ordered into the office. There, without a moment's delay, the timekeeper's books were consulted, and number six was paid the five dollars and eighty-five cents which were due him. Five dollars are gone to Mrs. Flaherty for board. Seventy-five cents more will be owing to her tomorrow morning for another day. And then I shall set out on the road with ten cents in my pocket. I had calculated upon a balance far in excess of that. For when I went to work on Tuesday, five full working days were before me, and at a wage of one dollar and sixty cents, they were to yield an income of eight dollars. My reckoning left out the chance of rain. For three days, passing showers drove us to cover, and the called time was as closely noted by the boss as it is by the referee in a football game. Only we were given no chance to make it up. Mrs. Flaherty's home has a real hold upon my affections. It is one in my mind with the blessed interludes of rest which were brief transitions from one eon of work to another. My acquaintance with the household covers a period of incalculable time. Mrs. Flaherty wears toward me now a motherly air of possession as she wrinkles her brows in perplexed protest when i tell her that i am going away in the morning with no knowledge of where i shall find another place and she wipes her mouth with a corner of her apron and tells me with increasing emphasis that i'd better stay by my job and let her care for me decently and not go wandering about the country and as likely as not come to harm. Her husband is a painter, a little round man with red hair and high spirits, who was a well-preserved veteran of the Civil War, and very fond of telling you of his life as a recruity. Minnie is their daughter. She inherits her father's hair and gives promise of his rotundity. But just now Minnie is fifteen, and the world is a very interesting and exciting place. She took her first communion last Easter, and still wears her confirmation dress on Sundays, and is really pretty in a blushing effort to look unconscious when Charlie McCarthy calls. Charles appears regularly on Sunday afternoons, I gather. He is a driver for an ice dealer, is not much older than Minnie, and is very proud of a light gray suit and a pair of highly polished brown boots. 
Tom is Minnie's only brother. He is a stoker on a river boat and can spend only his Sundays at home. Tom is a little past his majority and takes himself very seriously as a man. He tells you frankly that he is earning big money and is anxious that you shall not escape the knowledge that he is a libertine. The child that he is came comically to the surface last night, with no least regard for the new-found dignity of manhood. Tom shares one of the beds in my room, and in the middle of the night he came bounding to the floor in a nightmare and running to the door, began pounding it with both hands and screaming, Papa, Papa, like a child in a paroxysm of fear. He soon woke himself, and then he slunk into bed and was surly with us as we crowded about him, eager to know the cause of this violent awakening. Jerry and Pete and Jim and Tom Wilson and I are the boarders. Wilson's is the only surname that I know. Surnames are little in use on this level of society. They smack of a certain formality, like that which attaches to Sunday clothes. We were all sitting on the porch after supper on my first evening, and I knew that the men were taking my measure. Jerry broke the silence with an abrupt inquiry after my name. I responded with my surname. Jerry took his pipe from his mouth and turned to me with some warmth. That's not what I want to know. What's your first name? What's a man to call you? Oh, call me John, I said, with sudden inspiration, and I have passed as John accordingly. Wilson and I worked together at unskilled labor, and we have a bed in common, and it was during a night of fearful heat, when neither of us could sleep, that Wilson, in a burst of confidence, told me his full name. I had noticed him as a newcomer on the works on Wednesday morning. He accepted the job with alacrity, and in spite of evident physical weakness, he went to work with feverish energy. At noon hour we shared a dinner, and he told me that he had slept in the open for three nights running, and had had nothing to eat since the previous noon. I referred him to Mrs. Flaherty, and at supper I found him at a place at her table. It was that night that he gave me his confidence. Two years ago he came to America from the north of Ireland. From the first he had found it hard to get work, and he had never kept a job long. This was chiefly due, he said, to his having been brought up to the work in the linen mills, and to the difficulty that he found in adapting himself to any other. And now his narrative suddenly glowed with active personal interest, for, with each succeeding sentence about his apprenticeship in Lurgan, there rose into clearer memory visions of a charming fortnight once spent at the home of the owners of the mill. I have set 
for myself today the task of describing the past week of actual service in the ranks of the industrial army. My pen runs wide of the subject, and I have to force it to the retrospect. There were five working days of nine hours and a quarter each, less the called time eaten out by the rain. Never was there clearer proof of the pure relativity of time measured by an artificial standard. Hours had no meaning. There were simply ages of physical torture, and short intervals when the physical reaction was an ecstasy. We were called at six on Tuesday morning, and at twenty minutes to seven we had breakfasted, and were ready to start for the works, each with his dinner folded in a piece of newspaper. Passing from our side street to the road which leads to the post, we were at once merged in a throng of working men moving in our direction. I was suddenly aware of a novel impression of individuality. Gangs of working men, as I recalled them, were uniform effects in earth-stained jeans and rugged countenances, rough with a varying growth of stubborn beard. To have distinguished among them would have seemed like distinguishing among a crowd of Chinese. Now individuality began to appear in its vital separateness, and to awaken the sense of infinite individual sensation, from which we instinctively shrink as we do from the thought of unbroken continuity of consciousness. But my eyes were growing sensitive to other differences, certainly to the broad distinction between skilled and unskilled workmen. Many orders of labor were represented, masons and carpenters and bricklayers and plasterers besides unskilled laborers. An evident superiority in intelligence, accompanied by a certain indefinable superiority in dress, was the general mark of skilled labor. And then the class of unskilled workers was noticeably heterogeneous in composition, while many of the other class were plainly of American birth. It is a mile from Highland Falls to West Point, and we moved briskly. There was little conversation among the men. Most of them had taken off their coats, and with these over their arms, and their dinner pails in hand, they walked in silence with their eyes on the road. The morning was sultry and overhung with heavy clouds, full of the promise of rain. A forest lines much of the road, and from the overhanging boughs fell great drops of dew, dotting the surface of soft dust. The wayside weeds and bushes were gray with a coating of dust, and seemed to cry out in the still hot air for the suspended rain the old academic building stood near to the mess hall at the southern end of the post in process of removal one wing had been blown up by dynamite i was told and now its site lay deep in heaps of debris it was here that one gang of laborers was employed 
and it was with them that the boss had instantly given me a job upon my application on the previous morning. There were about sixty men in the company. Most of them stood grouped among the ruins, ready to begin work on the hour. I had but to follow their example. I hung my coat, with my dinner in one pocket, on a neighboring fence, and brought a shovel from the tool-house and joined the other men. We stood silent, like a company at attention. The teamsters drove up with their carts, and the bosses counted them. In another moment the head boss, who had been keeping his eye on his watch, shut the case with a sharp metallic click and shouted, "'Turn out!' in stentorian tones. The effect was magical. The scene changed on the instant from one of quiet to one of noisy activity. Men were loosening the ruined mass with their picks, and urging their crowbars between the blocks of stone, and shoveling the finer refuse into the carts, and loading the coarser fragments with their hands. The gang boss, mounted upon a section of wall, began to direct the work before him. A cart had been driven among the ruins, and he called three of us to load it with the jagged masonry that lay heaped about it. It was too coarse to be handled with shovels, and we went at it with our hands. They were soon bleeding from contact with the sharp edges of rock. But the dust acted as a styptic and helped vastly in the hardening process. When the cart was loaded, another took its place, and then a third and a fourth. In a harsh, resonant voice, the boss was shouting his orders over our heads to the farthermost portion of the works. His short, thick-set, muscular figure seemed rooted to the masonry on which he stood. The mingled shrewdness and brute strength of his hard face marked him as a product of natural selection for the place that he filled. His restless gray eyes were everywhere at once, and his whole personality was tense with a compelling physical energy. If the work slackened in any portion of the ruins, his voice took on a vibrant quality as he raised it to the shout of, "'Now, boys, at it there!' and then a lash of stinging oaths. You could feel a quickening of muscular force among the men, like the show of eager industry in a section of a schoolroom that has fallen suddenly under the master's questioning eye. In the dust which rose from the debris, I picked up a mass of heavy plaster, and before detecting my mistake, I tossed it into the cart. But the boss had seen the action and instantly noticed the error, and now all his attention was directed upon me. In short, incisive sentences, ringing with malediction, he cursed me for being an ignoramus and threatened me with discharge. I could feel the amused side glances of the men and could hear their muffled laughter. At last all the carts were loaded and driven away, and until their return some of us were set 
at assorting the debris, throwing the splintered lathes and bricks and fragments of stone and plaster into separate heaps. The work compelled a stooping posture, and the pain of lacerated fingers was as nothing compared with the agony of muscles cramped and forced to unaccustomed use. A business-like young fellow, with the air of a clerk, now began to move among the men, and they showed the keenest interest in his approach. I heard them speak of him as the timekeeper, but I had no knowledge of such a functionary, and I wondered whether he had any business with me. He hailed me with a brisk, "'What is your number?' I looked at him in surprise. "'He's a new hand,' shouted the boss from his elevation. "'What's your name?' asked the timekeeper, as he turned a page in his book. I told him, and when he had written it, he drew from his pocket a brass disc, upon which was stamped the number six, and this he told me to wear, suspended by its string, and to show it to him as often as he made his rounds. The cartman had reappeared and received their loads, and had again driven off in long procession in the direction of Highland Falls. We went back to the varied torture of assorting, but the pain was not purely physical. The work was too mechanical to require close attention, and yet too exhausting to admit of mental effort. I did not know how to prevent my mind from preying upon itself. At last I hit upon a plan which appealed to me. I simply went back in imagination to the familiar country seat and followed the morning through a likely course. We met at breakfast and complained of the discomfort of the sultry day as we discussed our plans, and then we walked over the lawn to the pier. Two cruising sloops, that had waded in the hope of a freshening breeze, now weighed anchor, and under mainsail and topsail and jib drifted slowly out of the harbor. We watched them in idle curiosity, wondering at the distinctness with which the conversation of the yachtsmen came back to us across the oily placidity of still water, until they seemed almost halfway to the spindle and then we agreed upon a morning ride. We telephoned to the stables, and before we were ready the horses stood restless under the porte-cochere. Step by step I followed our progress along the road that skirts the inlet and across the crumbling bridge on the turnpike and under the great drooping elms which line the village street in Fairfield and up the long ascent of the Greenfield Hill to the old church, and then home by the back road. The dogs came running at us from the stables with short, sharp barks of welcome as we cantered past, and we called to them by name. As we turned by the reservoir, we could see a groom running down the path in order to reach the house before us. Hot from the ride, we passed through the dim mystery of the hall and billiard room and den, 
and out upon the veranda, where a breath of air was stirring, and the fountain played softly in its bed of vines and flowers. Lewis had returned from market. Our letters lay in order on the settle, and near them, neatly folded, were the morning papers. And now Lewis's approach was heralded by the tinkling of ice against the glass of bumpers of cooling drinks, and his bow was accompanied with a polite reminder that luncheon would be served in half an hour. I had been working with all my strength. Now I looked up at the boss in some hope of a sign of the noon hour. There was none. Painfully I went back to work. Again I tried to find diversion in this new device. Slowly, with double the needed time for each event, I followed the morning through another imaginary series. Now I was sure that the boss had made a mistake and had lost track of the time, and was working us far into the afternoon. The clouds had thickened, and the growing darkness I was certain was the coming night. Great drops of rain began to fall, but the men paid them no heed. Soon the drops quickened to a shower, and still the men worked on. The moisture from within and without had made us ringing wet when the boss ordered us to quit. We bolted for our coats and dinner pails, and then huddled in the shelter of the still-standing walls of the ruin. Through one of the great doorways I caught sight of the tower of a neighboring building with a clock in it. It was twenty minutes to nine— in all that eternity since we began to load the first cart, we had been working one hour and forty minutes, and had each earned about twenty-nine cents. The rain cost us an hour of working time, and then we went back and found some relief from the earlier discomfort and the saturation which had thoroughly settled the dust. In another hour, with no freshening of the air, the clouds faded out of the sky. The sun shone full upon us, and there arose from the heaps of ruin a mist heavy with the smell of damp plaster. But I had my second wind at last, and I worked now with the feeling of some reserve of physical strength. It was with surprise that I heard the loud voice of the head boss in a shout of, Time's up! And almost before I knew what had happened, the men were seated on the ground in the shadows of the walls, eating their dinners. I opened mine with much curiosity. There were two huge sandwiches with slices of corned beef between the bread and a bit of cheese and a piece of apple pie very damp and oozing among the other men with my aching back pressed against the wall i sat and ate my dinner lingering over the last crumbs like a child with some rare dainty at the end of the forty-five minutes allowed to us at noon there came again from the head boss the order to turn out. In a moment the scene of the morning was renewed. 
there was the same alternation between loading the carts and assorting the debris we had been but a few minutes at work when the cadets went marching past on their way to mess familiar as most of the men were with the sight they seized eagerly upon the diversion that it offered the boss relaxed his vigilance the work visibly slackened as we lent ourselves to the fascination of individual motion merged into perfect harmony of collective movement conspicuous in the rear was the awkward squad very hot in its effort to walk erect and keep its shoulders back and its little fingers on the seams of its trousers the men laughed merrily at the comical contrast between such grotesquely strenuous efforts at conformity and the ease and strength and grace of the unison which preceded it no rain came to give us breathing space in the afternoon hour by hour the relentless work went on the sun had soon absorbed the last drop of the morning rain and now the ruins lay burning hot under our feet the air quivered in the heat reflected from the stone and plaster about us the fine lime dust choked our breathing as we shoveled the refuse into the carts you could hear the muttered oaths of the men as they swore softly in many tongues at the boss and cursed him for a brute but ceaselessly the work went on we worked as though possessed by a curious numbness that kept us half unconscious of the straining effort which had become mechanical until we were brought to by some spasm of strained muscles but five o'clock came at last and with it on the second the loud time's up of the head boss you could see men fairly check a tool in its downward stroke in their eagerness not to exceed the time by an instant in two minutes the tools were housed and the works deserted and the men were running like schoolboys with a clatter of dinner pails and a competitive scramble for seats in the dump carts which were moving toward highland falls the hindmost were left to walk the mile to their lodgings i fell in with two old irishmen who noticed me with a friendly look and then went on with their conversation paying me no further heed but i felt strangely at home with these old men their short faltering steps exactly suited my own and i comfortably bent my back to the angle of their stoop not in an effort to simulate their figures but because to stand erect cost me exquisite agony the men in the carts were soon out of our sight but the remnant was large and was thoroughly representative we formed a weird procession this fragment of a company in the ranks of labor there were few native-born americans one or two perhaps besides myself but there were irish and scandinavians and hungarians and italians and negroes end of chapter two part one